Alright, everybody, how are we doing? Welcome to another episode of PG Radio. On this episode of my podcast, I have the most coveted person. I've been waiting on this interview for months now, Scott. I have Scott Barry Kaufman, or SBK, as he's fondly known by his colleagues and everything. I was so fascinated that people have like a nickname for you. But just to give you a brief on who Scott is, Scott is a psychologist, author, and popular science writer known for his research and writing on intelligence and creativity, and correct me when I'm wrong. Most of his media-friendly work attempts to redefine intelligence, although you were also part of the sci- also the scientific director to the Imagine- Imagination Institute in the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. You're also co-founder of the Creativity Post and author of seven different books. The eighth is on its way. Ninth is on its Ninth way. Ninth is on its way, my bad. You won the 2011 Daniel E. Berlin Award for Division 10 of the American Psychological Association for Outstanding Research on Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts by a Junior Scholar. And in a 2011-2012 recipient of the Menza International Award for Excellence in Research, you are listed on Business Insider as one of the 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world. Did you know all this about you? <laughs> I <guess> I <laughs> I want to take a quick second out to remind you that you can subscribe to my podcast if you like its content. The subscribe button is right on the top of your app screen. Thank you and enjoy the show. Having 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 known all of this, how does it feel to finally be crowned with being on my podcast? I think this is my greatest accomplishment to date. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you have such a taste for humor. And honestly, I was I'm also... a what human? For, for humor. For like, oh, for, for, for humor. Yeah, because like you, you, you mentioned... Um, I think the last class that I took with you that if you weren't a professor, you'd be a stand-up comedian. Is that oh, accurate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why Why stand-up comedy? Where is that coming from? Oh, I really like um, to uh, have a very sort of absurdist viewpoint on humanity mm-hmm. and um, not take myself too seriously or... Uh, I think part of the problem with the world today is everyone's taking themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. Their own existence. It's right. like, you know, it's like... Um, you know, adding a little bit of like perspective, you know, humor does that, mm-hmm. you know, and I always like to have that kind of perspective. I've, you know, that's part of the reason why I am associated with colloquia because I have no particular interest in American politics as such, right? I'm still very Indian at my core. Um, but I am absolutely an absurd fellow. That's how I see myself. For me, humor is at the peak of communication. Yeah. Humor is saying the unsaid. It's communicating what we all know to be true. And I think that's similarly resonated in the psychoanalytical literature also, that it's a fact that our unconscious holds, but is not illuminated by the conscious. The truth is funny. Yes, the truth is funny. At one point a year ago, I was not at my best mental state, and I decided to experiment with truth to the extreme. I was like, I'm just going to tell the truth regardless. Good and for you. And it started off with truth and fear as two major motifs. I had to eventually add humor to it, you know. What do you think about humor being the ultimate form of freedom of expression? Oh, interesting. I think that uh, you can make a case for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think it's the only uh, for the... uh, I mean, you can have freedom of expression and it doesn't have to be through the modality of humor, Mm -hmm. certainly. Right, sure. But the the vehicle of humor is this way of um, getting people on board with the truth before they cognitively realize, like, and put evaluative uh, levels on it, like, oh, that was wrong or that was right. Mm-hmm. Like, with humor, you get the immediate gut, like, if it's funny, mm-hmm. you know, like, we can find things funny and then be like, oh, shit, I should not have found that funny. But mm-hmm. that's the second stage. Right. So humor is a, one of the very rare uh, mediums that allows us to um, communicate directly with uh, with truth. Yes, it's, it's like an instinctive acknowledgement of truth before it's even registered in the cognitive real estate for right. us. Because right. people go through all these different stages, right. right, of like, you know, maybe sometimes we'll confront the truth, but it'll, it'll be uh, opposite of what our religion has told us our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, you know, even if we know in our gut that it's it is true we then um freak out cognitively at these later stages mm-hmm. and then we contort ourselves in all sorts of ways you know right um the two exemplary um articulations of the idea of humor for me came from cornell west and Slavoj zizek as a matter of fact and so zizek says is what a genius guy honestly. you're so you're a big fan of zizek. i've recently started getting into him <laughs> i've just recently because over the summer i was listening to him and it would i would have to 
go back in the conversation so many times to understand what he just said but his idea of philosophizing on humor is insanely interesting to me mm. and then cornell west said something that something along the lines of comedians allow us to see society horizontally because we look at stuff very vertically right like in yes. a linear sense they allow us to see it in this whole different lens where the abnormalities suddenly shine in front of us would you agree so what does it mean to see uh, it horizontally let's just say it allows us to create a cross you you know it it becomes very easy to avoid not hierarchical no 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 definitely so that's, that's not your point. Yeah, yeah not yeah. linear not in the sense of a to b the causality yeah. is absent yeah. it's a cross sectional view yeah i see i see that's what we need more of in this world isn't it uh-huh we need more horizontal absolutely that's yeah. what we, we need more art in some sense and that's art, that you just nailed it the, mm-hmm. the, the what we need more of in this world <laughs> is yeah is humor for sure and artistic humor for absolutely sure in my but opinion. just horizontal like mode of communicating with each other uh-huh as opposed to vertical communicating with each other right that's right. a really profound point hmm i hadn't ever seen it like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really profound point yeah. but uh, let me get the controversial okay. out of the way before we get okay. to the more substantive meteor parts of the whole thing we were well, we finished that's boring don't get it out of the way let's stay controversial okay, absolutely <laughs> i am glad we are on that spirit we were ta- you asked me after one of the classes what i thought about intersectionality and we oh, barely yeah. got to it i want to ask you what do you think about intersectionality Oh, well, I really uh it made a lot of sense to me the Crenshaw formulation of it um within a law context of of its initial formulation as um uh, within the within the law uh, uh context viewing um like like within a feminist movement it was just constantly being talked about like white women, you know, like and and their issues and I think a lot of uh minorities uh ethnic racial minorities within the feminist movement just felt like well this didn't speak to my experience you mm-hmm. know like i have this kind of juxtaposition of yeah i'm a feminist i'm fe- i have those issues but i also have these other issues so i think it made a lot of sense in that context but um as crunchall has noted the modern day um manifestations the way it's used it's almost it's almost weaponized like that like, like intersectionality these days within certain segments of of, 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 of of the political spectrum, kind of use it as a way to, um, it's not in, this, in the original spirit. Mm-hmm. So I like, I do like the spirit of like, you know, you have um, a certain set of experiences that um, on a regular basis that I don't have. And um, let's, you know, talk and try to understand each other's experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't like it when it's used as a way of, um, dividing us and and making us uh, kind of t- like like making a point that we could never possibly understand someone else's experience because I don't think that's true. I think there's a certain number of objective. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say objective qualia, which uh-huh. is a funny paradox. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. That would be an oxymoron <laughs> yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But I, I'm known to like spontaneously say say. Uh, paradoxes mm-hmm. and then trying to rec- reconcile what I mean by them mm-hmm. but um, uh, I, I do think there are certain quality I know quality is as subjective as can be right but I actually think that like um, like someone's experience of, of like um, being discriminated against is not in uh, once you take the label away from it and you look at physiologically you look at what is the emotion was the experience mm-hmm. I think it's actually a, a very common feeling Mm-hmm. That we have, we can each have in our own way, regardless of our identity. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe that's just the Buddhist in me, <laughs> right? Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to look underneath the labels and um, talk about common experiences. It's also the humanistic psychology approach that I adopt. Mm-hmm. So it becomes foreign to me sometimes in these discussions of like, you know, like as a Muslim LBTG, you know, uh, vegetarian who. I don't know. I you can add up all the identities, right. and it's like in that unique configuration, I experience the world fundamentally different than you. Right. I would actually make the argument scientifically that's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, because you may have different experiences, but that might not be the same thing as you experiencing the world mm-hmm. in a fundamentally different way. Mm-hmm. We all know the. F- feeling of being ostracized in right. some way we all know the feeling of and, and if we can rally among the labelless experiences mm-hmm. i think that would get us closer to the kind of universal love and peace that i am f- striving for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that makes sense it, it does make sense but 
here here is how i see it and this is what i responded <coughs> with when you asked me this too i think it's a brilliant sociological concept it's it's yeah. one of the most profound ways to categorize um people and their identities which is i strongly strongly believe very very important however it's it does not acknowledge its own dialectical nature which is that there is an antithesis which is how it becomes a circular firing squad right if this was a a conceptual of conceptual framework to solve problems it eventually becomes an implosive concept conceptual framework cuz i am l and i disagree with b and b disagrees with g and then we cannot be together in some cells yeah. dave chapel has a very nice um stand up on this where he's like they're all sitting in a car lgbt and everybody hates the t cuz they're dragging them I down i saw that on netflix mm-hmm. yeah. right but i i i do think they've managed to in some sense put people in one group but they they haven't really come to the synthesis of creating that slight amount of difference requisite for every person to fight for themselves mm-hmm. it becomes an extremely slow moving circularly logical process as as a political movement is 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 that resonant with you in some sense can you just rephrase the mm. the last question yeah my question was that they managed you know this is sort of what we were talking about the last time too i think i am i'm a little bit more pessimistic when everybody's in an in group eventually somebody in the in group will find a reason to create an out group within the in group there is absolutely no possi- possible way when you're contesting for resources that there will not be an out group and in that sense it becomes a circular firing squad we've got to stick together but also i don't like you in this group you know that's and th- it's an unresolvable process because there is so many voices after mm. that that's what i think is the and then the, then i also think there is a conceptual flaw in understanding identity too i propose and i don't know if somebody else has an identity set theory There are so many contours in my social environment through which I construct my identity and then I give primacy to a few of them. I may give primacy to the fact that I'm Indian or the fact that I'm a male or just the fact that I'm a student and they all add up in this very algebraic un un um, incongruent fashion to create what my identity of myself is. I might not feel bad if you insult men because I may not really relate as much to the identity of of a man. Is is that any is there any literature on that? Oh, I don't know if there's literature on that, but I think it's just like it's just based on personal observation and personal experience. That's certainly true. I mean, we feel most threatened about the things that we uh the identities that we hold most near and dear to our heart. I mean, if you're the stereotypical, you know, masculine, you know, go to the gym fit 10 times a day. And, right, right, right. right. Bro, the you, gym bro. And 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 then you have like Gillette kind of making fun of men. Mm-hmm. That's really going to piss off those people. Right. You know, those guys are really going to be like, you know, what are you saying about bros? You saying right. we're not, you know, and uh whereas that Gillette stuff didn't bother me as much personally. Mm-hmm. I don't the uh, masculine thing doesn't is not the corest part of my uh, by any stretch of imagination the core right. part of my identity, mm-hmm. you know. Um uh I do think I'm a man, <laughs> but uh I see what but, you mean, absolutely. But, but it's not the core part of my identity. Um so I think that that is that is absolutely I I don't know if anyone's done the study mm-hmm. i mean but it almost seems obvious that that's the case you right know? it's empirically more apparent that that is the case in my view but but personally um i resist labels and i resist identities mm-hmm. and i think that stems from my early childhood experiences of being in special education and being um people told me what my identity was going to be right. wearing disabled Right. Um uh you know I had a auditory what I did is I had an auditory disability when I was growing up. Made I actually couldn't process things in real time. Mm-hmm. So I'd be in the classroom and they thought I was stupid because um I was tuned out and uh, and drawing and writing stories in my notebook that mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the lesson plan. So I I grew up almost a knee-jerk reaction to being labeled or anything. So actually personally I almost find it uh so far and to to grasp so strongly to any identity because to me I I've been trying to shed these identities as much as possible mm-hmm. in my life. So if I were to ask you who is Scott Barry Kaufman what would you respond? Well, it's it's a really uh really good question. I I've it's a really deeply personal question. Mm-hmm. I've had a uh, just girlfriends in the past have been almost have described me as formless mm-hmm. and and that scares me when they say that mm-hmm. but um because I then I try I say no I'm not but mm-hmm. then I try to think we are they wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> you know there's some quality to me that I I've never really been able to articulate or understand fully right um some mysterious aspect of the cosmos that that created me mm-hmm. <laughs> that I that I feel uh such a affinity for everyone i meet and 
Um, no, and almost no matter who it is, I feel like I temporarily um, take on their identity and I take on who, their essence. Mm-hmm. I haven't been terribly good at at, 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 at at articulating my own separate from others. Right. It's it's a weird. It's very I, weird. I think if somebody I care would... so much about people I'm in the proximity to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I almost feel like I like feel their their pain. I feel their mm-hmm. um, their struggles, their fights, mm-hmm. and 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 because I'm so sensitive to the emotions of others, that it's almost like. A, like a back and forth within me right it's it's almost like they bleed into you to some degree and so you, your form becomes yeah. their form becomes your form in some yeah. sense is that permeability of of my consciousness yeah right it's very open uh-huh i think i think it's spot on with any level of i mean i shouldn't say that but to my intellectual sensibilities and to my readings of of buddhist texts it seems very very congruent to that you know the the buddhists would argue the goal is to be formless yes right <laughs> the goal it's not is a to negative thing that you're yeah. formless yeah. in fact yeah. isn't it yeah right yeah. and by the way when my when my girlfriends have said this in the past they didn't mean it in a negative way mm-hmm. yeah no 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 i follow <laughs> it's not why they broke up with me <laughs> <laughs> you're too formless <laughs> <laughs> maybe they did not maybe they did not yeah. but yeah. um i mean i've been taking a class with professor david kite i don't know if you've heard of him he's a very interesting man if you ever want somebody who's he's one of the one of the best classes i've taken at columbia up until and Thank he teaches you for a class the recommendation called reincarnation and technology okay. where he takes buddhist texts stuff about neuralink and records while on one end and then quantum physics and he tries to ask a scientific uh, a religious question through a scientific technological lens if there is possibility of reincarnation and so on um and that class has so so thoroughly changed my view of things really it's it's phenomenal how little i believe in as a hindu i grew up with the idea of the illusion the maya that's what we call it it seems like this is some evolutionary schema that i perceive while actual reality is distant and if somebody can deliver that in 3 weeks i think they're doing a great job i'd say right i'd say um i need to sneak in there i i still pass as a student uh, on campus so. uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> no mean, one I, takes me seriously i i'm no i i say the opposite i think people take oh. it too seriously cuz you're a student that's the opposite that's oh. the paradox at columbia if you're a student <gasps> do not say that you know that kind of thing um i also wanted you to uh, wanted to have um a little bit of a discussion on the difference between empathy and compassion because we barely touched on it in class the last time around well you really you kind of threw me uh threw me off kilter with your question who is uh-huh. Scott Barry Kaufman <laughs> <laughs> are you still thinking about it Because well yeah you really threw me off kilter with that question mm-hmm. um i i i haven't ever i really i just realized in this moment that i've never fully articulated consciously why I, the identity discussions feel so foreign to me, mm-hmm. um, and and I would love to get to the root of that at some point and understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, it I don't. It makes me so uncomfortable whenever whenever I'm around anyone who like asks me questions like, "What's your religion?" or like, "What's your what's your politics?" You mm-hmm. know, or like, you know, like it makes me so uncomfortable because I always hate uh, I, I hate the idea of like. we're going to gang up together mm-hmm. against those people over there mm-hmm. it was it, i i'm so aversive to that like i remember as a kid you know just on the playground like i was super sensitive like if anyone was being like if looked like they were alone in the corner you know like i wanted to, i would always befriend those people mm-hmm. and if people were bullied you know um it it just upset me so much and i just never and i was friends with like all the cliques mm-hmm. like i was one of the a weird kind of high school student where I would be friends with um with groups that um would hate each other but mm-hmm. they all liked me mm-hmm. and it's that's weird right <laughs> yeah. but, but you know what that makes me think is that I think your question begins to get answered as soon as you say that like my so that's who I am mm-hmm. that was my way of answering to you who I am right yeah right there is a friendly sensitive you know yeah. very very I think that's who I am uh-huh, very yeah. compassionate and and that gets Thanks for me. letting me work that through I mean we could we could sit and have an hour long conversation oh, just well, no. <laughs> just thank you for letting me like consciously attempt to at least articulate that because that was the first time in my life that mm-hmm. I had tried to put a feeling to a conscious representation verbal representation so thank mm-hmm. you for that opportunity It's yeah it's interesting you say that because if i were to think of what the identity of my of my 
endeavor of this podcast is that if I can allow my guests to think about things that are close and personal to them that but they never see it, I have done my job. If I interest you in this conversation, I don't care who listens to it. Honestly, mm. nobody does, but I don't care <laughs> if anybody does either. It really is just that if I can bring a smile to somebody after the interview and they're like, you've already brought me a smile. Yes, yes. Right. I'm 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 and in the first 5 minutes I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I could do that. Well, how would you describe me? Hmm. I think I would I think my first guess and I think it's incorrect because it needs to be adjusted but the anchor to some degree would be a contrarian. Hmm. Right? You would actively I'm make cheeky. Yes, right. You would actively make the effort to go against the tide. Hmm. Right? And usually when I imagine somebody that like that I imagine um a more broy broad-chested I am going to change the world kind of a figure, right? But we've we've seen time and again in history that it's actually quite the opposite be that martin luther king or mahatma gandhi all of these people just did not look the part of people who changed the world i love that um, many of them were introverts absolutely yes yeah. and uh, i mean they had such a con- introvertism probably allows you to have such a connect with your inner voice that the secrets of your mind reveal themselves to you when you're by yourself right and that bleeds compassion from there it has to because you understand you you knew no better when you were younger Yeah. That does that make sense? Oh, 100%, 100%. Okay. Okay, no, I'll I'll jump Sorry, on the Sorry, but empty. you asked me another question. No, 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 before. but let, let's let, You just threw me for a loop. Um so, No one's ever asked me that question in any interview I've ever done, so you threw me for a loop. You should have me on your podcast now. <laughs> no, okay. Before we get onto the empathy and compassion uh, train, I want to ask you this. Here is this the story that you have this classical learning disability kid become some some kind of a genius wonder wonderman afterwards no I, i i would i would go to the extent of calling you that i hear it all the time it's 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 uh, it's such a myth that we 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 come across with almost these irregularities that lead to profound geniuses in in the future um what do you think is happening there what do you think is is why why does that case come to be so often which case exactly your case in in some sense somebody who was bullied who was who was who had learning disabilities yeah. as a child and then they compensate in such a constructive fashion um and yeah. and not just that but go the distance to well i think it's more the uh more the rule than the exception we don't realize that i i edited this edited this book called twice exceptional uh-huh. um with uh people uh in the field writing about their own research studies on this topic and you find that you know over and over again you see uh individual student a lot of students with simultaneous uh hardships challenges um uh, neurodiverse ways of viewing the world um uh, coupled with creative strengths mm-hmm. and you just i think that's more like i said I, that's more the rule than the exception uh we just assumed it's the opposite mm-hmm. but data and research is suggesting that's just not the case and uh we know that creativity in uh, one of the greatest sources of creativity is having um uh, unusual experiences is the way it's been phrased by Dean Simonton and colleagues mm-hmm. uh, even to the extent to which you can put people in the laboratory and put them in a virtual reality situation and change the laws of physics for them like you know you'd expect like things are getting bigger as you walk towards them but they get smaller and you're like what the fuck you know like mm. what how's that possible but and you know just like just change like your their everyday perceptions and you can do a pretest posttest creativity test and you find people's um general uh creative ability actually changes after such a virtual reality session mm-hmm. you know i think that like we can build up from that principle to just like early childhood experiences or things that kind of take us um away from the ordinary perceptions that everyone and assumptions about how the world works that mm-hmm. everyone else has mm-hmm. you know um uh, really really lends lends to a, a creative approach to life mm-hmm. would you say that there could have been a certain something let, let's just make it a little hyper local would you say there could be a certain something in your school years in your development years that would have been so much more like that would have been the cane that the, the stick that you would have needed to walk properly through the course is is there something that we should be doing in our educational architecture to include uh, some of these geniuses that are waiting to be heard but they're not allowed the opportunity because of this uniformity well, there's so many so many kids falling between the cracks mm-hmm. who aren't giving those opportunities mm-hmm. so is your question is there something we should be doing is no i mean there? something we should be doing is a matter of policy and is a matter of yeah, action yeah. but even even as a as a thought architecture what could we have because I, i i don't relate to that directly mm-hmm. i i've been academically stable uh, since i was a kid it just came to me um but i i see you and i and i read about all these other people 
what is it that we can do to bring out this this these flowers from between the cracks these stop them from falling you know oh boy you're you're asking the the question that motivates my entire uh, career mm-hmm. so ex- i'm getting at, ex- at the at existence <laughs> <laughs> what is what can we be doing i mean i i we we could be doing so so much it's not about it's not about the like you know the academic uh, acceleration that's in a lot of ways that's a red herring a lot of um a lot of students uh perform very well academically but um uh, don't really uh, are motivated for coming up with creative creative solutions to problems or or making um uh the world you know they do a lot a lot grow up without a purpose mm-hmm. without a without a sort of sense of um like oh i i i really can contribute this to the world um and they feel very aimless you know i teach this course that that you've heard of called the science of living well where uh, i think that i want to emphasize to the students that the point there is not to uh to show me how smart they are on the test you know mm-hmm. it's i don't want the students to sh- to feel like they need to prove anything to me mm-hmm. they students have already proven to me that they're worthy by just simply being mm-hmm. and i think that's a very different way of thinking about about columbia university mm-hmm. and i think some of the students might be like what the heck is this professor doing right uh, you know i i take it as a given that that that, that you're worthy mm-hmm. um and and all i all i expect is a sense of uh, attempt to to grow and 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 to uh, become a better version of oneself, mm-hmm. and so to answer your question uh, about childhood, we don't give students enough of a chance, all students enough of a chance to become the best version of themselves. We are constantly asking them to become uh, the best version of the template that mm-hmm. we cre- created for all children, mm-hmm. and I think that's a real problem. I think. Um along these lines i was thinking i've i've i hadn't been around a lot of people um with even mental health issues up until i got to america and then i think it's just the acknowledgement of the mm-hmm. fact that is missing in india but i was i have been particularly around a few people who've been chronically depressed and i was just thinking about it and i realized that they have they have a longer gestation period for reward to come they can naturally operate in a way i need a reward instantly they can wait for it to come longer are than i are you an extrovert i am yes i am an extrovert um and i want to ask you how you guess that that's a very psychic thing um but i was psychological thinking... <laughs> <laughs> let's not get that twisted mm, yep no absolutely um and i was thinking so like for instance we I have think the... this interview is going well i think it is what do you think i think it's going well yeah i, I yeah. i'm glad my questions are piercing enough i was i thought they would be just very despite trivial. my low energy i think it's going well right yeah. right um so we have like we have an infrastructure like the military right what that allows you to do is if you had a troubled past you know we will forget all of that we'll give you a new life start yeah. again right yeah if we could create the harder problems we have say for in, for instance in the academy itself we have the problem of either quantum physics or say consciousness if we put if we can create a funnel for people who can wait before the reward gets to them they can channel their natural state into mm. it as well as we can reap benefits from you know the human cycle of things oh, itself oh yes right oh, Is, yes. isn't that an idea that we could we could be thinking about Well, yes, we could have medical interventions as well. Uh-huh, right. Along those lines. Absolutely. So much of the problem today is is people seeking immediate rewards at right. the expense of longer-term planning. I mean, look at global warming, warming mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. instance, or uh, um well, there's so many examples of that in in our current politics. Right. Uh, no, you're spot on. Mm-hmm. I think we've forgotten that the biggest gift we have is delayed gratification. biggest gift we have as a human as a human species is right? delayed gratification and not only that can i amend that a little bit uh, yeah. or add to it um we it, it's extraordinary that 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 we have the capacity to ask the question um what will be the consequence of this action before we take the action mm-hmm. and allow that to actually affect whether or not we're going to take the action or not is that because of the new cycle myopia that it only lasts for like our attention spans are now gerrymandered to last for 16 hours to 24 hours and then we forget 
because there is something new stimulus overwhelming oh my gosh greta thunberg i can forget about all the shitty food i ate last night you know it i think it really has like an interchangeable effect like that yeah i think i think so especially in a hyper academic environment like at columbia because there is on oh, new homework professor kaufman gave me five growth challenges to do now i can forget about all the other things that were not growth worthy <laughs> not growth worthy <laughs> <laughs> i like that i like that expression um <laughs> growth worthy that's actually a quite a profound expression at, at, at 16 different levels of analysis so anyway, we, won't, we, won't, <laughs> we won't get into that <laughs> yeah, i just um, worked that out but yeah anyway go yeah on. i mean yeah. actions should be seen as investment wouldn't you say um some immediate some for the future absolutely absolutely and we um rarely tip put that space between the stimulus and response i mean we rarely do that and uh and and even like just not take it look i'm going to loop it back to the humor thing mm-hmm. We take our thoughts to, and emotions too seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we feel sad. We feel we feel like an uncomfortable emotion. We're like I'm sad right now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we something great happens to us. We're like, you know, I'm happy right now. You know, um, is there any 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 rule of the universe saying that when I feel an uncomfortable emotion, I can't be happy now? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's no the wall. Right. In fact, I of the universe saying that can't be true. I'd propose something. I'd say we need a difference between this wholesome feeling of happiness and the temporary pleasure that we get. Both For of sure. them we call happiness, right? For sure. So I can be very satisfied in stress. I am doing the best I can, right? That's all your high achievers who are, you know, hustle, go against it. On the other hand, there is a temporary feeling of pleasure. That one drink I get, the one sex, substance, food, sugar, all of that. right and i think that we need we need to delineate that because it causes a lot of epistemic complications when we start discussing the notion this is so great i mean this is really not an interview of me mm-hmm. uh in the sense that this is a real true dialogue i that's yeah. how i it's really great yeah you're great you, you sure because i have now i have questions of of the no, you're great nature. it's great you're a great interviewer yeah mm-hmm. as someone who's done a podcast for 5 years of my life i i mean i generally mean you're a good interviewer mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, thanks. I appreciate that. I you know you know what I I I'd, I'd place it at the behest of professors like you because you particularly you allow me to think out loud, and it mm. gives me the courage to good, good. be wrong as much as I can. Good. I was discussing. I don't care if you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I, on a, except on a test. <laughs> <laughs> I will fail. I, I will fail your ass. <laughs> no. You know what? I was discussing this in, in one of your growth challenges with 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 the with the with the, with the, with the, with the, with the TA Adam. Shout out Adam. Um, I go up every time to go speak about whatever my growth challenge was, and the singular reason is I have always been too afraid to fail. so i will embarrass myself I, i'm waiting for somebody to laugh at me i'm waiting for somebody really? to really sh- yep i swear to you have you ever had experiences as a child where people laughed at you hmm i i judged myself too much i was very afraid i had to steal my freedom in every sense like of the word like in a perfectionism sort of way no not even that uh, uh, just afraid just i this is where i was i was between a rock and a hard place i could not be myself and take the feedback to my family because my dad was a disciplinarian mm. so here is the the set of bullies i cannot manage with mm. here is a set, is my dad who would not take me standing up to them i see and i got lost in that yeah. and then i realized that the way out is not in the outside but with my family first so i had to mend the issues with my father step by step and it went beautifully wonderful that's N- so hard to do it is incredible i for that i give credit to my mother she insisted go talk to him yourself it does not matter take the discomfort for the long term comfort mm. she said that over and over and i was like no 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 you will bargain for me no you will go bargain for yourself and now we are at a point me and my father where we can sit down like two mature people and and communicate very freely absolutely uninhibited wow. um and in that sense i had to steal my freedom it was Amazing. never given to me i my dad said no to columbia when i got in and i was like nope i'm going to go Where did he want you to go? University no, of Delhi. No, no. He wanted me to finish my fi- the course in finance that I was doing. Uh, and that was that that's that's just how Asian parents, brown parents operate. I you see. do as you're told. I see. Um now he respects me for do, doing doing as a podcast please. you're doing. That has a part because it 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 allowed me to say I'm going to touch upon say psychedelics afterwards. Now my parents know, which is an abnormality com- in in comparison to this this the space that they are in. No parent wants to know that. right um and that level of honest communication that helps 
Well, it sounds like that was quite a process for you to get to that point. The biggest twist of my life was my father. That's how I put it. Amazing. And and you're for the better because of that mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My family comes as a massive support to me in the entire process. But mm. this is you just being a therapist, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's in my DNA. Yeah. By now, I'm assuming. By now, I'm assuming. Um, so... Tell me about intelligence. How is it that you plan on redefining intelligence? What is your notion of intelligence? I don't know if I'm... When I started out, I thought that my my life mission and goal was to redefine intelligence. And I came up with a theory of personal intelligence. Well, I, first I came up with a theory of... A, called it in my dissertation the dual process theory of intelligence because I argued that at least 50% of human cognition as measured by IQ tests was being neglected and that was our subconscious mind and our intuition and I was curious if people who were really good at um, learning implicitly unconsciously the the uh, probabilistic rule structure of the universe or the rule you know during their daily lives um, patterns um, were, the, were the same ones who scored well in IQ tests and I found a, almost a zero correlation between the two and I thought that was fascinating and I, I thought that there was so much more to the uh, to human intelligence than just uh, our sort of on-the-spot conscious um, working memory mm-hmm. you know, processes. So that was the dual process theory but then I um, worked on a more broader theory of intelligence called the personal theory of intelligence arguing that intelligence is um, the dynamic interplay of ability and engagement in the pursuit of personal goals. Um, so what really matters at the end of the day is not your cognitive ability, mm-hmm. um, but it is um, how you um, are engaged in the things that matter most to you in life, your personal goals, um, and, um, and, and make progress towards them. And one could, uh, an intelligence researcher could rightly criticize that and be like, well, that's, you're not talking about intelligence. You know, you're, you're talking about like realizing your personal goal. That's not what we talk about when we're talking about intelligence. And I would say, yeah, that's the point. The point is that I'm trying to reconceptualize the, the word, you know, the, the idea of intelligence that you've been uh, using your own way. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people who've been using, using it in a certain way are very resistant to ever thinking about it any differently. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it'd be very easy for me to be like, yeah, you're right, like, I'm not talking about intelligence. Um, but I, I think that, you know, when so many students who are falling between the cracks because of our outdated notions of intelligence, it becomes important to re- to broaden the uh, idea of what that word means, mm-hmm. because you you know you have a lot of students who may appear quite stupid, and I hate that word, but they that that's how they appear to others. Right. Um, uh, when they're not engaged in in something that they love, and and then a transformation occurs once they. Um, are given the opportunity and have made contact with a source of inspiration and you're almost like who is that person Mm -hmm. you know and I think that that kind of intelligence that that comes from that is just as legitimate as the kind that you capture on a 45 minute decontextualized IQ test Mm -hmm. (coughs) I think um, am I making any sense yeah absolutely oh 100% I think and I had a moment very, very similar to that with a high school friend of mine I met six years after. And this man is on the road to success, which nobody could have predicted. I asked him straight up. I was like, if, I, if somebody was to ask me six years ago to describe you in one adjective, I'd say delinquent. Uh, the Hindi translation would be something like delinquent. What happened to the delinquency? Mm. Um, and he just found what he, was, what he wanted to do and what he was good at. And he found the freedom to pursue it. I think the problem with or I think why you were right in rather subjectivizing this notion of intelligence is because the current perceivable sense of intelligence is very closely tied to material worldly success and the possibility of it, where the the concept of expanding its scope to include where the success might lie is missing. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, right? Well, another way I like to frame it is um, you know, everyone is over here. Uh, you know, I feel I feel very again. I feel like a foreigner to like my whole field of intelligence research because they're all over here um, talking about like what's correlations with achievement, it's correlations with success. I am focusing on self-actualization, mm-hmm. and that's the distinction that I see. I see achievement versus self-actualization. Right. I'd rather self-actualize in this sh- short uh, body that I have. Mm-hmm. 
uh, not short body that I have, but the short lifespan in this body that I have is what I meant to say, um, then uh, achieve. Because the ultimate reward all of us are seeking is a biochemical reward, right? It's in some sense a mental biochemical reward. And the, the, be that the money, be that the fame, be that in any sense this, this uh, high ground that I might be able to hold in the outside external reality as it stands, if it does not give me the biochemical reward, what's the point of doing that? Would you, would you agree with that? People have that, uh, that mentality, but I don't think that's a healthy mentality. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's what leads to a lot of disappointment. I mean, the, the Buddha would have, would have agreed with that. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, he was at... Come on, on attachments? Right. I mean, um, you know, I could be feeling... Don't, I mean, don't become attached to your mental states or your emotional states mm-hmm. because they will change absolutely uh, they'll change like that and you don't even know it you, mm-hmm. you know you look away and all of a sudden you're like wait that changed you know where is my happiness yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah have you sat through a vipassana meditation retreat yeah 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 what do you think of it i loved it i i absolutely loved it and i um i i remember going through so many uh thoughts through that experience that um i almost felt like it was a purger it purged like i had um the, I mean, there's inappropriate things I can say. <laughs> I don't want to do On that. On my podcast, you can, but I, I get what you mean. I get what I don't you want mean. To, but I, I remember, like, there's a really cute girl, whatever, there, there. I remember these thoughts going through my head, you know, and and, and I was just, like, at one with that. I didn't judge them. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and just, like, through the whole sort of process, I... I ended up actually viewing that 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 girl much more human, mm-hmm. um, you know, from like the first like twenty five minutes, you know, mm-hmm. until like just being being at these thoughts and um, and 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 uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe that was just maybe that was inappropriate for me to say. The purge does that is, make sense? Absolutely, the yeah. purge is an absolutely proper description. Yeah, I was miserable throughout the ten day period. Every yeah. minute of it, I felt sadness, and that sadness was coming from this backlog of cravings that I was carrying with me as a That's load. the point I wanted to make. We have mm-hmm. all these cravings that we are on autopilot with, and we very rarely really um, uh, reflect on uh, if the, how they're serving us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I would make the case that, that the exercise of, of observing that and reflecting on that, how they're serving us, um, will serve our growth much more so than going on autopilot with those things, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it's it's profoundly transformative to, to to go through that exercise for hours and hours and hours, and being stuck with the thoughts. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do with them mm-hmm. but reflect on them. Right. But um, process them, mm-hmm. uh, see them in a sort of bird's eye view sort of way. Um, as a you have witness. no choice. What? As a witness, not as, as a, a participant. Witness. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it, in a metacognitive way. In, a, in an infinitely metacognitive way, because yeah. you see the meta too. You're, you are yeah. moving to an infinite regress where it's sort of yeah. an ineffective space. You don't yeah. get affected by... Tell me about creativity. What's, what's, what is it that you've... Because I think it's, a, it's... I don't even know how you begin to quantify something like creativity. I'm teaching a seminar this semester called Creativity in the Good Life. And uh-huh. we're, we're slowly going through the Cambridge, it's a humongous book, Cambridge Handbook of Creativity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for so all these studies that have been conducted on creativity, it's still about just as nebulous as it ever was. I don't know how much... <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to the field of the science of creativity, all my friends. <laughs> 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 Including me, who's devoted 20 years to the topic. Right. I still feel like it's uh, it's a very mysterious thing mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that you can't pinpoint it. Uh, you can't pinpoint it in the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Um, you can't... Environmentally, you don't... You know, it's uh, Sometimes we're surprised at the conditions mm-hmm. that, that bring the most creative things. Mm-hmm. Um Yes, people define creativity in my field as novelty as novelty and usefulness. So mm-hmm. having the dual criteria mm-hmm. of or novelty and meaningfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the definition of everyday creativity, bringing more novelty and usefulness to your your everyday existence. Mm-hmm. Or uh, or Raoul May, who wrote one of my favorite books, The Courage to Create, who defined creativity as just bringing into being anything that uh, did not exist before. Mm-hmm. Just bringing into being. Uh, if you just define creativity that way, we're constantly being creative. We don't even realize it. We don't put the label creative on it. Right. A lot of people don't feel like they're creative people, mm-hmm. you know. But 
they really are quite creative so much mm-hmm. yeah. how do you delineate creativity and intelligence in that case how are they different and how do they dance together well a lot of a lot of scientists have tried to answer that question through uh, experimental paradigms and <laughs> through psychology experiments it depends how you measure intelligence and it measures how you it depends how you measure creativity mm-hmm. there's a version in which you measure intelligence as IQ tests and you measure creativity as um, bringing people into the laboratory and asking them questions like how many uses are there for a brick mm-hmm. go you have one minute and if you do that you actually find there's a moderate correlation between intelligence and creativity mm-hmm. my colleague Paul Sylvia wrote a, a paper saying intelligence and creativity are linked much more than we realize in a lot of ways to be creative um, on the spot you need to actually use your intelligence to inhibit the most obvious responses and uh in a lot of ways, very unintelligent people, and I don't like using that phrase, but mm-hmm. whatever the opposite of intelligent is, mm-hmm. um, they probably do exist. Mm-hmm. There are people who are the opposite of intelligent. It's fair to say that this mm-hmm. is a continuum of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in, in, along that measurement of IQ um, or executive functioning, those who are the low end of that, um, you know, like the first thought that pops in their head, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, like if I said. Uh, chair what's the what's the very next word that you think of people who are more intelligent will be more resistant to saying uh table obviously table entered your head when i said that mm-hmm. but you didn't like raise your <laughs> professor table mm-hmm. you know you were like you know you um you you were able you, you you're, you're able to sort of access remote as, as remote associations as possible right right so in that sense they can be linked mm-hmm. um but if you look in the in the real world at creativity over a very long time span uh, in you know, especially in the arts, you find that uh, the IQ kind of measurements are not as not very relevant. We found in our own paper, uh, this research I conducted with someone called Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've sort of heard of him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Colin DeYoung, who was a grad student of his, right. um, mm-hmm. we published a paper showing that IQ is uh, correlated basically zero with artistic creative achievement Mm -hmm. Um, and it is correlated with scientific creative achievement but more importantly is intellectual curiosity Mm -hmm. Um, I think we underestimate uh, and underappreciate the child who has immense intellectual curiosity but doesn't do particularly well under a timed you know test of mental efficiency absolutely you know the biggest problem I was thinking about it this morning particularly this morning I think the system will never accept me. This is a statement that came from my unconscious to me. And I was like, what does that even mean? And then I thought about it. I think in some sense I relate to you. Um, I, I've never doubted the fact that I have some ability that I'm proud of, but I don't think it is what fits. You know, it is, it is, it is absolutely not that cookie cutter uh, fit at all. I would agree with that. Yeah. I'm 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 glad you would because it 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 sort of eases um, my 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 tribulations about it, um, but I feel like it it has this this the tests in India all of them are rote memory tests and the the roter they are the more digest and vomit model they are the better they're supposed to be, and so I grew up in a place like that. I would but the biggest criticism I would get with my English literature classes is that your English is way too it goes over. That's not a criticism. You cannot under, uh, grade me lower because I'm writing too well. That makes no sense to me, you know. Um, and so I, I gave up on that very early on. I was well, like, mm-hmm. I, I sense that you are an intellectually gifted child. Mm-hmm. You know, they they can be punished. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's not all gravy and roses to be intellectually gifted. Mm-hmm. But would you say I am? In, in your understanding, maybe on a heuristic level, would you say it is more on the intelligent scale or the more creative scale? I think you're, you have a ravenous curiosity which lies at the intersection of both. Mm-hmm. So don't make me pick. Okay. <laughs> so don't make me. You're pick. on the edge of both. You're on the you're on the edge of both. Curiosity, I hundred percent agree with. It's I think it's a driving force. I think it's, it's some, obvious that yeah. you have that in spades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I openness think to experience we found is the number one predictor of for creativity, creativity. Yeah. I read all your papers all, everything that's on your website is has been through my mind once because really? I was preparing for all of this and so the next question is implicit learning 
Implicit learning also has a strong tie to um, creativity, if I'm not wrong. What does implicit learning mean? Well, we found implicit learning was was strongly correlated with openness to experience. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, well, implicit learning, it's hard to describe, to define that for everyday people because it's uh, it's it's nerdy. Mm-hmm. It's really in, the, in in this cognitive science literature, there was a construct, an idea called implicit learning that mm-hmm. cognitive scientists were studying um, in various ways. So Arthur Reber studied in terms of the he created the artificial grammar learning task. So he looked to see off on the spot if people, but if they were giving repeated exposure to rules, um, to uh, if they are doing a test period, were they able to um, uh, basically learn a new language on the spot subconsciously without realizing it? Mm-hmm. Um, and because they are, you know, they and they found that yes, people would get better. Um, and we're above chance. We're mm-hmm. above chance on during the test phase on like, you know, is this is this word a, a real word? Yes, no, no, it's not a word. You based entirely on intuition. Mm-hmm. What is your gut telling you mm-hmm. based on what you, the learning session, the right. learning session? And you would you would you would debrief people about it. And when you debrief them, they would say no. Uh, I had no. I was just going entirely on my gut. You know, mm-hmm. and. Um, and other people have studied in other ways. Um, I, I've studied at a serial reaction time task where I have people um, who are just pressing, like whenever there's a dot, uh, whatever uh, line the dot is above, press that key. Mm-hmm. So it feels like it's the most boring experiment in the world. You, you go through 760 trials, mm-hmm. you know, of right, like, right, right. Just pressing a yeah, you know, you have fingers on a keyboard, like, you know, one, four, nine, eight, one, two. And what you find is they don't know this, but there's actually a probabilistic rule. So like 75% of the time, like the dot's going to be on this, you know, nut key. 25% is going to be in this key. Uh-huh. And you find over time, they just people that. actually learn. At, you, you, you measure it based on response time. So you can actually see that people get faster at anticipating where the, the pattern is going to be. And if you consciously ask them, they're like, oh, I have no idea. I, I, I could not tell you the pattern. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a very complex probabilistic pattern, but akin to the kind of probabilistic patterns that we experience in our daily lives mm-hmm. in so many ways, including the social domain. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to have social intelligence requires a lot of understanding of probabilistic uh, ways of people acting and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found uh, that there were indiv- there were individual. That was the the contribution I made to the literature was showing there's individual differences in that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are much better at uh, implicit learning than others. Mm-hmm. No one ever asked ever has ever really asked that question. Arthur, excuse me, Arthur Reber asked it, but he did never asked if there were any meaningful individual differences. He assumed that whatever differences there would be would be ev- evolution would have weeded them out because we'd all need this ability. Mm-hmm. But I was like, well, no, they are significant. And I found that people who were better at pushing learning on my tasks, uh, on my tasks, my, my serial reaction type tasks, were more likely to be open to new experiences. And they also were more likely to be impulsive, too. We, we measured impulsivity, so that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I feel like that opened up a new window to uh, studying human cognition. Would implicit learning be something like subattentive learning? Like when I'm I'm attending to something, but I'm learning something on a subattentive, on an underattentive layer? Yeah. So what you're describing is what's called incidental learning, um, and that is one form of implicit learning, for uh-huh. sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I wonder, but my, my curiosity comes where. I insert the Buddhist paradigm into it where you are expanding your attention, right? Where you are constantly just expanding your conscious bandwidth, right? Uh, what would that do to something like implicit learning? What would a, a Buddhist monk, his in, 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 implicit learning look like, hypothetically? Huh. Well, I would love to study that. Uh-huh. Let's go to Tibet. I think that's where real psychology is. Like, if you could meld the subjective and the objective there, the way Dalai Lama proposes... Well, that would be amazing. Uh, I'm working on a current project trying to, to integrate Eastern and Western philosophy, but that's a different topic for uh-huh. another podcast. But I don't know. I don't know what the results could be because the results might surprise you. Um, you, you assume that all those years of meditation would improve implicit learning, mm-hmm. but I wonder if in a lot in a lot of ways it. Um, you become so focused on the present stimulus mm-hmm. that you actually are less likely to implicitly learn things. Mm-hmm. And so you may actually, uh, the results might actually turn out to be quite counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Counterintuitive. Intuitive, yeah. yeah which yeah. is a pun, actually, uh-huh. as we're talking about <laughs> intuitive reasoning. Right. Anyway. Um, 
because I wanted to get your view and I'm pretty sure I don't know if you will discuss this in class or not but meditation we sort of do but meditation and psychedelics for positive psychology what is where is the research at with that what is your view on that meditation and psychedelics yeah I mean we can root out the fact that excessive use of psychedelics or unsupervised use of psychedelics and so on like that that variety of psychedelic use is detrimental to all kinds of psychology not just but as far as the research suggests with say Michael Pollan's book and and otherwise on the psychedelic front psychocybin psilocybin psilocybin Mm -hmm. I call it psychocybin you call it psychocybin in class I kind of like it better Uh, yeah what is the, what is the research on posit- what is the influence positive influence on well they have a synergistic effect and there is a recent study that that came out showing that both in uh, combination work uh, much much better in alleviating anxiety depression mm-hmm. um, than either one alone mm-hmm. so that that uh, is true and that paper actually showed that not just in combination with meditation but in combination with a whole wide range of um, of uh, spiritual practices mm-hmm. so prayer um, uh, there was a whole laundry list of spiritual practices mm-hmm. you kind of just add up all this stuff and uh, mm-hmm. they all have a synergistic effect on each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, this this grand spiritual effect that you mentioned I think it's very very important and I've only come to transcendence yes and awe is a manifestation of that that the sentiment of awe is realizing the transcendent in some sense right and we need that because the ethical moral aspect of human behavior aristotle shows we can sort of flesh out from basic reasoning itself right a little higher level reasoning but this this surrender to the fact that your monkeys floating in this infinite space on a muddy you know that kind of a spiritual bowing down to the universe kind of a thing really helps you put yourself in place put yourself in perspective that's what i remind myself every time i'm too serious about me well you know you're right uh, do you there are certain individuals like Donald Trump, you know, who I wasn't going to go there, that are the exact opposite of that. Yes. There's not a moment that goes by where they bow down to mm-hmm. anything other than their own superior, perceived superiority. Right. And that way of being is the exact opposite of what you're talking about. It's a coping mechanism at best. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. a coping mechanism at this, this, this hollowness in your stomach that you try to fulfill by constantly validating your own narrative. Yeah, the hollow. I wonder if he feels hollowness. He, yeah, no. I mean, you're you're basically right. Mm-hmm. You're basically right. Yeah. Right. That could be like technical. Like probably hollowness is is a more poetic explanation than a scientific explanation. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I, I think that his inner state of emotion is one of just constant pride hubristic pride hubris yep absolutely it's so it's not emptiness mm-hmm. it's so, it's driven by something superficial something though right yeah maybe maybe here's my guess maybe the way you interact with the world is far more deep is far more meaningful than the way he interacts with the world well I certainly have my moments <laughs> <laughs> okay I was just going to wrap this up I have one last question which is a okay. note I made to um one of the points in, in, in our class and I want to get your view on that sure so you were no, not being controversial enough today no, I'm very I disappointed not. in you I was being more philosophical today we will have to do one more for controversy's sake <laughs> no we won't no we won't <laughs> no, I would like it. to keep my job please <laughs> yeah no exactly I wanted to be more fair to that but there was a term we were yeah. discussing called realistic optimism in class yeah. right and I said my note said realistic realistic optimism on page 45 illustrates my problem with positive psychology there is always what I call an adjusted terminology a general good a yin with a tinge of a slight defect yang psychology is predicated on choice choices and hence is a trade-off there can never be no positive psychology without acknowledging the trade-off hypercontextual dichotomous nature of psychology reality interaction it seems like positive psychology ends up correcting itself over and over in a chasing its tail fashion in an attempt to objectively communicate a positive psychology however what it does is offer a terminological adjustment to the degree it is possible and then leaves it open for hermeneutics and context appropriateness to be dealt with by the reader receiver. Mm. Was this your reflection in the class? Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Did did Adam read that yet? Yeah. So unpack for me what you mean by the hermetic interpretation. What I mean is that say we have a concept optimism. Then what we do is we slightly adjust it. 
realistic optimism. We make it catchy enough for the yang to fit with the ying, and then it is context dependent. You know what? Use realistic optimism fairly when the situation prescribes itself. Yeah. So it probably what positive psychology does with all well intention is it fails to recognize that there is such context. A, yeah, or the trade off nature of things. Yeah. Well, the, well, this is the people I've written, I've criticized the field because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, and others have as well. I'm mm-hmm. not the only one who's criticized the field about that. The, the uh, paradoxical nature of existence is why I bring in the humanistic psychology aspect. This mm-hmm. is not a course. By the way, I'm not teaching a course on positive psychology. I'm teaching a course on living well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I hope I made that clear mm-hmm. in, in in class. What, what's the difference? Well, I try to take as many different perspectives as possible: uh, genetic, developmental, cultural. Um, uh, oh, I see what you mean. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there is no, you know, uh, like our next lecture, I'll talk about the, the positive uh, nature of negative emotions, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I certainly, um, you're preaching to the choir in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and but it's an excellent point. I would give that a, uh, an A-plus mm-hmm. uh, re- reflection. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I think we're running up on an hour. Oh. It has been phenomenal. It I hope you been. did not realize that an hour passed because that's one of the second attempts. In my podcast, is I don't want people to realize how much time we're we yeah. in full state. Yes, yes. Stephen Kotler yeah. would agree. But thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank um, you. I am eternally honored for this. I really, really mean that. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. If you like this stuff, might I please remind you to please press the subscribe button. If you liked it enough, if you press the subscribe button, it only helps other listeners come to find the podcast more easier. Also, if you disagree with something, you are more than welcome to approach me on any of my social media handles or my email. My email is mailme.prakhargupta at gmail.com. Finally, leave a feedback, leave a review. It really helps people who are who are checking my podcast out to find if they'd be interested in this content or not. And eventually, if you just love this podcast and you cannot stop thinking about it, share it with somebody. It really helps my audience grow a little bigger. Thank you so much for listening. It's been incredibly fun doing this for you.